This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. All right, Place to Be Nation, this is a special riveted series. This is Greg Diener on with Chico Alexander. It was a thing on TV. And we got a special series that will be lasting for the entire year. Because this year, we are, COVID permitting, supposed to be getting the third. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, y'all. Hospitalizations are going down. Vaccinations are going up. We have a chance. Let's just get those theaters open long enough, okay? Guys, don't make my job that much harder. Yeah. The third Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man movie coming in December. Still at the time we're recording this, doesn't have a title yet, but I suspect uh, once WandaVision ends in two weeks at the time we're recording this, that we'll finally get the title or maybe some footage of the movie, maybe? Maybe, possibly. Well, you know they've been working hard on it. Yeah, they're working in Atlanta right now. So, yeah, I've I've seen the set photos. They look they look pretty good. They look awesome. They look good. They look good. They look good. They look really good. It looks good. Looks good. Oh, it looks good. It 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 looks good. It looks good. It looks good. Oh, it looks okay. <laughs> Never mind that. Anyways, we figured for the first episode of this series. Now, the plan is we're going to do an episode on each movie in the Spider-Man franchise in movie form. Do the math. That is. So if you do the math, it's three plus two. Three plus two. Plus two. Plus two. Plus plus Venom. Plus into the Spider-Man. Yep. So, but we're not going to count Civil War or Infinity War and Endgame. Because, let's be honest, those are briefly... I mean, he's in most of the movie for an Infinity War, but it's not... It's, it's not, not necessarily a Spider-Man movie. Neither is Civil War, and neither is Endgame. Because yeah. he's only in... He only comes back at the end of Endgame. These but, are actually... These are just films in which Spider-Man is the central character. Films that are just... Spider-Man is the central character... And we counted Venom because, let's be honest, Venom is important to Spider-Man. So that's Venom, why we... Yeah. yeah. That and Columbia actually owns the uh, the rights to Venom. Well, do, do they still own the rights to Venom? They still own the film rights to Venom. There you Venom. go. They still own the it, film rights to Even Venom. though they have that weird deal with Disney where they have to share the Spider-Man rights. Small price to pay. Small price to pay. Chump change, even. Yeah. Okay, so let's just go into the history of who this character is. Spider-Man was created by Stan Lee and writer-artist Steve Ditko, first appearing in Amazing Fantasy number 15. He's an orphan who lives with his Aunt May and Uncle Ben in New York City. When he's bitten by a radioactive spider giving him the powers of a spider. Yep, superhuman strength, the ability to stick on walls, uh, acrobatic abilities for some reason. Yeah, 
I don't know about spiders being acrobatic, but okay. Whatever Stanley says, I'll go with it. And also and- the ability to uh, sort of have premonitions about people and things that are in trouble. Or yeah. as it has been come to known, spider sense. Spider sense. Now, of course, Spider-Man, as well as you do when you first get powers, what do you do? You become what? a wrestler. You become a wrestler, which makes a lot of sense. So he ha- so he performs in this wrestling match with Crusher Hogan, and he he goes on to beat Crusher Hogan, but at the same time, he doesn't get his money right Mm-mm. for for winning the wrestling match. I believe. Yeah, uh, I I don't I I don't know if the promoter I, thought he cheated or something, but what does he think he is, Vince? <laughs> Apparently, the criminal he lets the criminal go, and that criminal, and kill. this is important, turns out to be the guy who kills his uncle Ben. Yes, and so Peter Parker. He has deep regrets that he let the murderer of his uncle go when he could have stopped him. And so he vows that he's going to spend the rest of his life fighting crime as Spider-Man. And in between, he's working at a newspaper called the Daily Bugle, where he does photography. Freelance photography. Freelance photography. I guess the Daily Bugle doesn't want to employ... (laughs) This guy full stat. Well, here's stat. well, uh, not to speak about the age of the 1960s, but nowadays the uh, Daily Bugle would probably be like every other newspaper, just struggling to get by. But his boss, as we establish in the movies, the worst. Oh God, J. Jonah Jameson is terrible. He is. He, he is the uh, type of person who it seems like they wrote the old saying. If it bleeds, it leads. Forward. Yeah, he doesn't care. He he doesn't like Spider-Man, but he's like, uh, well. He doesn't like Spider-Man, but he understands that he needs Spider-Man in order to keep the lights on. So it's like, okay, Parker, you can take all these pictures of Spider-Man that I need for my paper. Okay. And he doesn't question why he always, he's never in the same place with Spider-Man at the same time. <laughs> He nope, never questions. He just, wants, he just wants the pictures, dude. He just wants the pictures. He doesn't. He can't put two and two together. He really can't. But over the years, our web hero has fallen in love and experienced heartbreak. Gwen Stacy was the first love of his life, tragically died, but then in stepped in Mary Jane Watson to steal Peter Parker's heart. And along the way, he. He's battled Dr. Octopus, the Green Goblin, and, of course, Venom. But we'd be here all day talking about Spider-Man in comic form. That's not the reason why we're here. We just wanted to give you the background in case you're, like, the one person who doesn't have any idea who Spider-Man is. Or that one person, seriously. Yeah. But seriously, folks, Spider-Man's film rights, we were going to just start right from Spider-Man 1. But we thought, you know what? The history of Spider-Man before he got to the Sam Raimi movies was so amazing and so complicated. 
the term Padetu comes to mind. Yeah, we had to talk about it. So we are going to start with first. Okay. Yeah, we aren't covering these because technically these are TV movies. And we will. And oh, spoiler, we are going to talk about the Spider Man 1970s series at some point. Yeah. On our regular but podcast. Not only that, these TV movies, if I'm not mistaken, were split up into uh, actual episodes of the Spider-Man series. Or they were edited together from the Spider-Man series. Yes. Of course, this is the Nicholas Hammond version of Spider-Man. So we have, and these were all released by the Columbia Pictures television unit. We have just Spider-Man, which was the pilot episode for the Amazing Spider-Man television series, which was premiered on CBS the night of September 14th, 1977. And then we have Spider-Man Strikes Back, which is based on a two-part episode called Deadly Dust from the Amazing Spider-Man, which was re-edited and released outside of the U.S. as a theatrical movie, which was released on May 8th, 1978. And then we have The Dragon's Challenge, which was made from the Amazing Spider-Man TV series finale, The Chinese Web, using the same method used to make Spider-Man Strikes Back. Two separate episodes edited together as one. And also, I should note, there was a plan by Bill Bixby to bring Nicholas Hammond's Spider-Man back as a TV movie with the Incredible Hulk, which would have been a Spider-Man Incredible Hulk team-up. But sadly, this never came to fruition. Yeah, and depending on who you talk to, it was because Lou Ferrigno, who plays the Hulk, was busy shooting Hercules. Oh, we could have had had Spider-Man and the Hulk in the same TV movie in the 80s. We could have, but he'd probably be also be shooting Trauma Center. Oh, yeah. Future entry on a regular podcast, Trauma Center. But also, going back into the TV world, there was another Spider-Man series on the other side of the world, which we will also cover on the podcast eventually, which is lovingly referred to as Japanese Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Because it's Spider-Man, yeah? But it's the Japanese version and the Japanese treatment. And of course, this is actually a real fun story. Byproduct of Marvel and Toei's sort of deal to adapt their properties for that market. And from there, we get Battle Fever J, the third Super Sentai entry. Yeah. By the way, folks, in case you don't know... Toei is the company that's responsible for the Super Sentai series, which is the Japanese version of what we know here in America as Power Rangers. The newest season, which actually debuted today. Oh, on Nickelodeon? Mm-hmm. And is it is this going to be the final season that uses the Super Sentai footage? I've heard! It's like Hasbro doesn't want to do that anymore. Oh, good! Because as we discussed on our podcast back in October... It was, that idea was stupid. Says you. Anyway. But yeah, they released a theatrical film, Toei, on their Spider-Man series on July 22nd, 1978. 
at the Toei Cartoon Festival. And of course, this would be based on the TV series that was airing at the time, and it would have introduced the uh, character Juzo Mamiya, who would go on to appear on the TV series. Because the Japanese TV series, they didn't use any of the, the regular villains from the comics. No, they made their own villains. They made their own version. It's like, okay, we're not, we're not going to do any of this stuff here in America. We're just going to do our own thing with Spider-Man. It's basically a generic kaiju-suited hero show with Spider-Man. Spider-Man! Because d- doesn't his powers come from, like, Planet it's- Spider? Yes. Either Planet Spider or Planet Marvel. One of those two. <laughs> But I believe the, as it says here on Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, the film was made available first streaming on Marvel's official website in 2009. So I don't know if it's still on the Marvel website. You could go check the Marvel website. But if you want, if it's still up and it's there, you can watch it if you want. And you know, the one thing I haven't checked before is is it actually available on Disney Plus? The toy movie. I've never checked to see if uh, Japanese Spider Man was available on Toei Plus. Uh, Toei Plus. Toei Disney Plus. It's not on Disney Plus, the Japanese Spider Man series, but there is a documentary on Disney Plus on the Japanese Spider Man. And if I can pull up the app real quick. They have the animated series is from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the other one from the 80s, the other one from the 2000s. Oh, right. it's and, all right. And it's of fr- course the original, uh, or the original animated series, but no, um, no Japanese Spider-Man, I'm afraid. Okay, the Japanese Spider-Man documentary is part of a series on Disney Plus called Marvel Six One Six. It is episode one. Uncover the beginnings of Japanese Spider-Man. Discover how this cultural crossover took place. Okay, so we've covered those. But then here we go with the film rights as to what would eventually lead into the 2002 film version directed by Sam Raimi. So because of the low box office performance of Superman 3 back in 1983, Hollywood decided, you know what? Doing a movie based on a comic book character, yeah, we don't we don't really think that's a big deal. Yeah, no. It, it's it's hard to believe now, but I mean, Superman was like in 1978 a big deal. Superman 2 in 1980 made a lot of money. And then Superman 3 and 83. It's better to just pretend that Superman 3 doesn't exist. Yeah. It's basically a Richard Pryor movie with Superman in it. Yeah. It was terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. I love Robert Vaughn, but come on. He's no Gene Hackman. I've I've always said that the definitive trilogy, as far as Superman is concerned, Superman... Superman to the director's cut and Superman returns. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So in 1985, the rights to Spider-Man for movies went to a brief period to 
Roger Corman. Yes, that Roger Corman. Yes. What can we say about Roger Corman? One of the greatest low-budget directors of all time. And of course, well, he didn't have the rights for very long because those rights would be optioned over to Canon Films. But Roger Corman did get an opportunity to make a Marvel movie 10 years later, and it was so rubbish that they never released it. Oh, yeah. We're talking about Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. Oh, God. It's basically a film that was... To this day, I don't know if that film was made to be released or if it was just made to satisfy the uh, the uh, contractual obligations that a Fantastic Four film would be made. I think it was basically made so they could, the company that had the rights could keep the rights. Oh, so a little bit of each then. Yeah. Ah. So Marvel Comics, they optioned the property over to Canon Films. Now, if you know anything about movies, Canon Films in the 1980s were legendary for making low-budget movies which turned big profits. Yep. Uh, trying, to, de- trying to think of... The Death Wish sequels. Thank you. Missing in Action with Chuck Norris. They were hoping that same magic could be used with Spider-Man. To the point where they paid two hundred twenty-five thousand to Marvel over five years, plus a percentage of any of the film's revenues. However, the rights would revert back to Marvel if a film was not made by April of nineteen ninety. And at the same time, if I'm not mistaken, Canon was making a couple of films that uh, would uh, not do too well. No, we'll get to them in a bit. But Marvel, of course, gave the property to Canon. So Canon decides to direct this movie. They were going to have Toby Hooper, who was the director of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, as director. And they had a script by Leslie Stevens, the creator of The Outer Limits. So you're thinking, okay, this is great. You got this the is great. we got something we got something here. You got the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you got Leslie Stevens, the creator of The Outer Limits. This is gonna be great, right? This is gonna be awesome. Well, okay. You ready for what Leslie Stevens had for his story? Oh, here we go. Okay, a corporate scientist intentionally subjects a photographer, Peter Parker, to radioactive bombardment, transforming him into a hairy, suicidal, eat-armed monster. It was very Island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. So he basically is trying to create, this scientist, a master race of mutants. Oh, boy. In a basement laboratory. Somebody should have told him this is Spider-Man, not X-Men. I don't think he knew what Spider-Man was. No, he just he just heard, ooh, we got Spider-Man? Ooh, let's do Spider-Man. And basically, this was the end result. 
This is basically the same approach the writers to the Super Mario Brothers movie made. And okay. if you think about it, the same approach that the writers of Japanese Spider-Man made. But they made that work. Well, in all fairness, it's Japan. They don't know anything about Spider-Man there. Not yet, at least. No. So Stanley, he did not like this origin story at all. Let's be honest. If I read it, In 1985 or 86, I'd be pretty angry as him, too. So a new story was written for canon by Ted Newsom and John Brank... I hope I pronounced this right. John Brancato? John Branca... John John Brancato, yes. Yeah, John Brancato. The variation on this origin story had Otto Octavius as a teacher and mentor to Peter Parker, which... It's kind of something that you'll see in somewhat in Spider-Man 2. Yeah, this would be seen in Spider-Man 2. And also in the Spider-Man PS4 game. So an accident creates Spider-Man, but it also deforms the scientist into Dr. Octopus. And so it results in his mad pursuit of proof of the fifth force. So Doc Ock reconstructs his cyclotron and creates electromagnetic abnormalities, anti-gravity effects, and biolocation, which threatens to engulf New York City and the world. Oh, sounds like fun. Oh, big fun. So Joe Zito, who had directed the Chuck Norris film Invasion USA, replaced Toby Hooper. And so the new director hired Barty Cohen to rewrite the script. Cohen was the creator of TV's Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Forever Night. Wait, it gets better. They had uh, a sidekick. A a sidekick for Doc Ock! Non-canonical. And then they gave Doc Ock this catchphrase. Okie dokie. What? I don't... I don't even... Anywho. So, Jesus. So, Menachem Golan who was using his pen name, Joseph Goldman, to write the film, did a bit of uh, script doctoring, just a little bit. And Canon, they got the rights, they got the green light for the script, they made the film for a budget of, and this is a lot of money in the 1980s, 15 to 20 million. Yes. But no cast. They took ads for this movie, okay? Before they f- shot a single frame of film for the movie. And also, they made a teaser trailer for the movie. They were really. Suffice it to say, they were excited. Yeah. And in fact, not only that, but for the teaser trailer, they got the legendary to narrate this. The legendary. Don LaFontaine. The voice of every trailer ever. Yes. In fact, after he died, they just said, you know what? Screw it. We're not doing any more voices for trailers. Yeah. So we're going to play that original canon film trailer with Don LaFontaine right here. (laughs) 
this unsuspecting city, history's greatest experiment creates tomorrow's greatest superhero, Spider-Man the Movie, a live-action spectacular directed by Joe Zito, based on the characters created by Stan Lee. Oh, that's epic. Yeah, that was 22 seconds of awesome. Yeah. So while no casting was finalized yet, Zito expressed interest in actor slash stuntman Scott Oliva, who had posed for Cannon's promotional photos and ads and made public appearances as Spider-Man from Marvel. Now, one candidate Cannon wanted for the lead role of Peter Parker, Tom Cruise. Who would that guy be? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I heard he's in some movie called Risky Business. I don't know whatever happened to him. Yeah, that guy will never make movies in this town again. Also, one person they considered for the role of Doc Ock, Bob Hoskins. Oh, yeah. That's another guy who has trouble making decisions. Uh, Yeah. As we mentioned with Super Mario Brothers earlier. God rest your soul, Bob, but... No! You tried! At least, you you know, uh, uh, too bad this is a podcast, because I just want to present him with the uh, Bart Simpson cake. At least he tried. And also, Stan Lee had a desire to play in the movie J. Jonah Jameson. Yep. Can you imagine how awesome that would have been? That would have been awesome. He would have owned that role. Oh, yeah. And also for the role of Aunt May, two people that were considered, Warren Bacall and Catherine Hepburn. That would have been something. Either of those two were yep, in the movie. And there's just... So much potential in casting, but there was one slight problem. Oh, yeah. And this is the, well, two slight problems, if you want to be technical. Because around this time, Canon Films was making two movies with big budgets and big potential, but both of them failed miserably. Yep. The first was Superman for the Quest for Peace. Now, Cannon had bought the the Superman film rights from the Sulkines who produced the first three movies. So they made the fourth Superman movie in 1987. And, oh, Superman 4. Oh, boy. Hey, I gotta say, though, it's fun for a laugh, especially when Nuclear Man talks with Gene Hackman's voice. And also, why are... Why is Meryl Hemingway breathing in space? Why? It doesn't make it. You know what? Just no. Just no. No. And also the other film Cannon had was Masters of the Universe. So they got the rights for He-Man Masters of the Universe and this was going to be one of their big event movies of 1987. They got Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, and this was going to be an incredible, incredible movie. And it only made $17 million at the box office in 1987 money. That's not a lot of money. No, it's not a lot of money. And this, coupled with these two flops, they had to slash the budget of the Spider-Man movie 
down to ten million dollars. So Joe Zito, he he just oh. bounced. He just so, yeah, Joe Zito bounced, and I'm guessing they're never going to get Tom Cruise. Yeah, pretty much. So the company commissioned low budget rewrites for the movie, and then finally, Cannon brought in company workhorse Albert Pune to replace Zito as director, who also made alterations to the script. Now, Albert Pune would go on to make the 1990 Captain America movie. Which was a really big movie, wait for it, in England. Yeah, they didn't release the first Captain America movie in America for some reason. Probably because it was so bad. Uh, yeah. So in 1989, due to Cannon's financial crises, the project shut down after spending about one and a half million dollars on the project. So it also did not help matters that each rewrite became from it went from bad to terrible to downright criminal. Yeah. So Pafe in 1989 acquired Cannon, and then. Golan and Globus parted ways with each other as Globus remained with Pafe and Golan left to run the 21st Century Film Corporation. Who would keep Spider-Man in development hell, let's say. Yep. He also extended Golan the Spider-Man rights with Marvel up to January of 92. So Golan... He shelved the low-budget rewrites and attempted to finance an independent production. So at the Cannes Film Festival in 1989, 21st Century Film Corporation announced that they were going to start Spider-Man shooting in September with, once again, touting ads in advance, touting a script by Bordy Cohen, Ted Newsom, John Brancato, and Joseph Goldman. So as standard practice, Golan pre-sold the unmade film to raise production funds. With television rights bought by Viacom and the home video rights purchased by, well, they come up again, and they're going to come up again later, Columbia Pictures, who wanted to establish a studio franchise. Yep, they wanted this. And again, this was, this was what, 1989? Yes. Something would have happened that year. That made, you know, Columbia think about establishing a franchise. And that would be Batman. That would be Batman. And of course, the actor who played Batman in that movie, he's going to come up again at some point in this series. But that's going to be much later down the line. So 21st Century attached as director at this point, Stephen Herrick, who at this point would have been a hot property because... In 1989, he would have already directed a hit film called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Never heard of it. Of no, course never I've heard, heard of it. Of uh, course I've heard of it. I mean, they just had a sequel to the movie for crying out loud. So Golan submitted this new screenplay to Columbia in late 89. It was actually just the 85 script with an adjusted date. It was like, okay. You know, this script that we have lying around, it looks good. It looks good. Looks good. 
Looks good. Looks good. Looks good. Looks good. Looks good. Oh, it looks good. Looks good. Oh, it looks good. Looks good. Oh, it looks good. But the studio requested yet another rewrite. How many rewrites does this thing go through? Too well, many. They, too many. They had two other rewrites, and they were also terrible. How many rewrites does this film need? You know, I can understand one or two script doctors, but it seems like they're throwing everybody, everybody at this project. And Columbia's script analyst considered all of these submissions the same story. Oh, boy. And Stanley at one point said in 1990, 21st century is supposed to do Spider-Man, and now they're talking to Columbia, and the way it looks now, Columbia may end up buying Spider-Man from 21st century. Wait for it. Oh, but we're still not there yet. We're not there yet, but wait for it. Yeah. So Golan, he still wanted to do his Spider-Man. He still wanted to send the original Doc Off strip for production bids. So in oh, 90, so in nineteen ninety, he contacted a Canadian effects company called Light and Motion Corporation about the visual effects. Oh boy. Okay. So at some point, and I don't I don't know how exactly this happened, and it doesn't really say on the Wikipedia page. Whoever edited this is skipping this part. But Chico, I think you might have all the deals. So, all right, I got, I got it. Here's, here's what happened. In 1990, Carol Co. Pictures bought the rights to Spider-Man from Menachem Golan for five million dollars, and they had planned a fifty million dollar budget for this film. Ooh, and Carol Co. hired James Cameron to write it. And this would be after he finished uh, Terminator 2, True Lies. No, not Titanic. No, that'll be a couple of years down the that's, line. That's still a couple of years down the line. Again, the script had James Cameron, John Brancato, Ted Newsom, Barry Cohen. No, seriously, Barry Cohen. Not Barney, Barry. And Joseph Goldmari, which was sort of a mistaken rewrite of Joseph Goldman, which of course was Golan, Dome de Plume. So James Cameron submitted an undated 57-page scriptment, which was part screenplay, part narrative story outline. So in this scriptment, it told the Spider-Man origin, but used variations on the characters of Electro and Sandman as the villains. So this Electro in Cameron's version of the story was a Megalo maniacal parody of corrupt capitalists and instead of the character of flint marco cameron sandman which is simply named boyd is mutated by an accident involving philadelphia experiment style biolocation and atom mixing in lieu of getting caught in a nuclear blast on a beach the story climaxes with a battle on the world trade center and had Peter Parker revealing his identity to Mary Jane Watson. And in addition, this treatment was so heavy on profanity. And at one point in the story, Spider-Man and Mary Jane have sex on the Brooklyn Bridge. This was, hey, not to mention that Spider-Man spent many a night 
peeping at Mary Jane. Oh, he was like George McFly peeping at Lorraine. He's a peeping Tom. And do you know who they got to play the wall crawler? Oh, I know. You know? Would that be Leonardo DiCaprio? That would be Leonardo DiCaprio. And he would have been a good Peter Parker, I he think. He really would, especially around this time, because he still had that nice boyish good looks that he would have in 1997 when James Cameron hired him for Titanic. Oh, yeah. But this was also, I, I'm going to presume, 1994. He would have been just two years removed from growing pains. And so you knew. You knew if anybody could play Peter Parker at this time in 1994, the motion picture adaptation, he would be the perfect person to play it. Definitely. Oh, if only. If only. But, okay. In 1991... So in 1991, Carol Co. Pictures extended Golan's option agreement with Marvel through May 1996, so it gave him an additional five years to make the Spider-Man film. But in April of 1992, Harold Co. ceased active production on Spider-Man due to continued financial and legal problems. It got so bad that in 1993, Golan complained publicly about the clause in the contract that gave James Cameron the right to decide on the movie and the advertising. And he finally brought suit against Carol Co. for disavowing his contractual guarantee credit as a producer. But Cameron had the contractual right to decide on credits. So Carol Co. sued Viacom and Columbia to recover broadcast and home video rights, and the two studios countersued. And ultimately, it ended in 1996 with Carol Co., 21st Century, and Marvel... <laughs> All going bankrupt. So, VR quit claim from Carolco, dated on March 28th, 1995. MGM acquired 21st Century's film library and assets and also received, in quotes, all rights in and to all drafts and versions of the screenplays for Spider-Man written by James Cameron, Ted Newsom, John Brancato, Menachem Golan, John Michael Paul, Ethan Don Michael Paul, Don Michael Paul, Ethan Wiley, Leslie Stevens, Frank Lologia, Neil Rettenberg, Barney Cohen, Shepard Goldman, and any and all of other writers. MGM also sued 21st Century, Viacom, and Marvel, alleging fraud in the original deal between Canada and Marvel. And in 1998, Marvel emerged from bankruptcy with a reorganization plan that merged the company with Toy Biz. Oh, Toy Biz. They made the best Marvel action figures. Hey, I'm looking at that Toy Biz WCW Macho Man Randy Savage NWO Wolfpack figure that's hanging above my DVD case right now. The one you got from the thrift store? Oh, yeah. Well, I got that at Hastel Toy in Medford, Long Island, as made famous on the Major Wrestling Picker podcast with Brian Myers and Matt Cordona. Hi, bitch. <laughs> okay, so the courts determined that the original contracts of Marvel's rights to Golan had expired, 
So the rights went back to Marvel, but the matter was still not resolved. And in 1999, Marvel licensed Spider-Man's film rights to Columbia, a subsidiary of Sony Pictures Entertainment, while MGM disputed the legality, claiming it had the Spider-Man rights via Canon, 21st Century, and Carl Co. This would all become moot when Sony ultimately ended up purchasing a stake in MGM. But that's a long way down the line. Okay. So now, now. Now. Something amazing would happen. Something amazing would happen. Okay. So now we got to go into a whole nother part of the story that doesn't involve Spider-Man but is directly related to how the film came to be. And this is an incredible story in and of itself. So, okay. This involves James Bond. Okay. So, while everything was going on while MGM was disputing the legality of the Spider-Man rights with Sony, the head of MGM UA, John Kelly, Moved to Columbia Pictures. Now, here we go into another story, okay? So now we go into the history of James Bond. It's a long one, folks. Okay. So we have to go to 1958, where Ian Fleming, the writer of the James Bond series of books, approached a producer from Ireland by the name of Kevin McClory to produce the first James Bond film. Now, Kevin McClory rejected all of Ian Fleming's books, but felt that the character of James Bond could be adapted for the screen. So McClory brought together a writer friend of his, Jack Whittingham, to help develop the James Bond movie character through a number of treatments and screenplays which would go on to a screenplay called Longitude 78 West, later renamed Thunderball. But without Kevin McClory knowing this, Ian Fleming took the draft for Thunderball and made it a novel and did not credit him or Jack Whittingham. So the two sued, and this went to court, and in the end, the case was settled, Ian Fleming paid Kevin McClory damages of 35,000 pounds and future versions of Thunderball were credited as based on a screen treatment by Kevin McClory, Jack Whittingham and Ian Fleming. And in the order and in the order, Kevin McClory was given any rights he had to the screenplays and treatments that McClory, Whittingham and Fleming had written during the collaboration for the Thunderball script. So Fleming conveyed to McClory the worldwide film rights in the novel Thunderball were to go to Kevin McClory. While Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli, who were the uh, heads of Eon Productions, who own the James Bond film franchise, later made a deal with McClory to turn Thunderball into a film with McClory producing. So if you've ever seen Thunderball... Like, the opening credits, it's Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman present Thunderball. Mm-hmm. That's the only credit they have in the movie. Yeah. Because Kevin McCurry is the sole producer on Thunderball as part of the deal 
that they made. And as part of the deal they made with Kevin McClory, he would not be allowed to produce a version of Thunderball for the silver screen until 1975. So that's the reason why some of the elements that were introduced into Thunderball, like, for example, Stravo Blofeld and Spectre are in the subsequent movies that follow Thunderball, like You Only Live Twice, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and Diamonds Are Forever. I don't know why they didn't include them in Live and Let Die and Man with a Golden Gun until the 10-year option expired. I guess maybe because Roger Moore was being introduced as Bond, maybe they wanted to start fresh with the franchise or something. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But in any event, that's basically what happened. And actually, there was another uh, sort of uh, level to all of this when McClory said he was going to produce an original James Bond film. And the project was hampered by legal action from the Fleming trustees and United Artists, which would be merged with MGM later. McClory won the case. The trustees and United Artists appealed... And they lost on appeal. They affirmed McClory's right to make James Bond films and enjoyed the plaintiffs from taking similar legal action against McClory in the future. He licensed the rights to Jack Schwartzman, who went on to make Sean Connery's return to James Bond in Never Say Never Again. Never, never say never again. Never Never say never again. And this was like a huge battle because in 1983, Eon Productions had Octopussy with Roger Moore that same year. So you had the Battle of the Bonds. And ultimately, Octopussy would win the box office battle with Never Say Never Again. But Kevin McCurry, he would not give up on trying to compete with James Bond. In 1989, he attempted to recycle his script again, and he wanted to have as the role of James Bond in 1989. Pierce Brosnan. Oh, boy. Because remember, Pierce Brosnan was originally going to be James Bond in 1987. They couldn't because he was still under contract with NBC for Remington Steel. Yeah, they renewed Remington Steel at the last minute just to be a dick. (laughs) Yeah. And so they had to bring Timothy Dalton, Cubby Broccoli, into the role of James Bond. But Yeah, you know what? Timothy Dalton, not a believable James Bond. But I... ask him about Lord Rassilon. Yeah. yeah. He's great on Doom Patrol. Oh, yes. And as Mr. Pricklepants in Toy Story. But McClory went on to try and outdo Bond... And MGMUA took suit about that to prevent his films from going into production. They abandoned the claim when they settled with Sony, and Sony acquired 20% of MGM. But the uh, final production for uh, the James Bond franchise would be retained by Eon Productions and their parent company, Danjack. Now, what does this have to do with Spider-Man? Aside from the fact that the first Spider-Man trilogy was produced by Sony. Okay, so as we mentioned, John Kelly was now at Columbia Pictures. He, knowing the rights with Kevin McClory, 
decided we're going to make our own James Bond franchise at Sony using Kevin McClory's script for Thunderball. And now you have a dilemma because you have MGM with their Bond franchise, and now you have a potential rival to the James Bond franchise at Columbia. And they were worried it would cause confusion in the marketplace. So the two studios, knowing that they had a problem with James Bond and with the Spider-Man rights, decided to make a deal. Yep. 1999, March of 1999, Columbia would surrender the rights to James Bond to MGM in order to procure the rights of Spider-Man. But yes. they only exercised the option of the Cameron material, which included the screenplay and the scriptment. And other sources reported that Columbia owner Sony agreed to pay $10 million plus 5% of any movie's gross revenue and half the revenue from consumer products. And so, after nearly 20 years of rights disputes going back and forth and back and forth, and a rights dispute involving a whole nother movie franchise, Sony was finally ready to produce their Spider-Man movie. And so, we'll cover that on the next episode when we cover on Into the Spidey Movieverse the first film in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man franchise called Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, come on. It, what else are you going to call it? The spider-arachnid person? No. <laughs> no, I think that was the character Brad Armstrong played in WCW. <laughs> yeah. So that's going to do it for the pilot episode of Into the Spidey Movies. We'll be back here in a while with episode one covering the first Spider-Man movie. And we'll see you next time right here. As we go deeper into the Spidey Movieverse.